I've really struggled the last three months since I've left British Cycling. I've really grieved that experience. And there's a huge part of that identity that I had over the last 18 months tied up in that team. And I've felt really low, actually. It's been really tough. And so I think if I think about sacrifice, I mean, there was a big part of myself that I sacrificed to, to put what I did into that team. And I guess what I, by putting these new boundaries in and being quite firm on them, I guess I'm trying to make sure that I don't sacrifice to an extent that could be catastrophic in the future, whether that's my health, whether that's a relationship, whether that's the prospect of having a family. Welcome to episode nine of the Untapped Potential podcast with today's guest, Carly McCulloch. Carly is a former professional cyclist with a 15 year career that led her to being at the top of a sport of track cycling in Australia and the world. During her time as an athlete, Carly won four world championships, Olympic bronze and London 2012 Olympic Games and three Commonwealth Games titles. Since retiring in 2021, Carly has stepped into the realm of performance practitioner, where she was appointed as the coach of the women's podium sprint group for the British cycling team. She is now both a performance coach at the Queensland Academy of Sport and Deputy Chef de Mission for the Australian Olympic Committee as they head into the Paris Olympic Games in 2024. This conversation you are going to love, and primarily because Carly has been so open at expressing why she left her role at British Cycling. So many of the points that she highlights, I have heard in much of my research and certainly kind of experienced myself as well in my own way. And so I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you. Please just leave a review if you do find this interesting and spread this podcast because it's going to touch you. I'm confident it's going to touch you in some form and it offers really, really great insights and actionable takeaways. So without delaying any more, hear this really great conversation with Kylie McCulloch. Welcome to this episode and welcome, Kylie. Thank you so much for um, coming on and, and being open to the chat. And I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. Me too. Really happy to be here. Just for anyone who's listening. So this is the first time that, that Kylie and me have, have met and spoken. Um, what I became aware of, Kylie, really was um, an article that you posted on uh, LinkedIn that actually many people sent to me. And this is really the the basis of where I hope this conversation goes and wherever else it goes. But the article is actually attached below. So if anyone's interested in, in, in reading that, it's below so you can check it out in your own time. Um, Carly has, has got a really, as you heard in the introduction, a really unique perspective from obviously your experience as an athlete and now as a coach. And I suppose the first question sort of leading into that um, is sort of what led you into coaching after such a successful career as an athlete? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because I wasn't 100% sure I actually wanted to coach. And I knew, especially I didn't really want to start a coaching career in Australia just because I had had such a long career in Australia and I felt quite, I guess, biased maybe about my experience as an athlete and where the system was. And so I thought that if I wanted to, to explore the world of coaching, it would have to be sort of elsewhere so I retired in November 2021 and my my main goal was to finish my degree which was a bachelor of education in human movement so um, I felt really strongly that I needed to finish that so I focused in on that and then I actually got sent the job um, description for the British Cycling Women's Podium Sprint role and I thought you know I'll, I'll apply for this in the hope that I get an interview um, just so I can have that experience um sort of maybe you know feeling maybe that I wasn't quite ready for that level however when I did apply for it and I was going through the criteria and I was putting together the um sort of the application and and then I did get an interview and I was preparing for the interview I really thought I, I think I can do this um and so that sort of I guess not forced me, but that kicked me into that into that realm and this world that I'm in now. Um, but I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I retired and I was exploring things within sport but not in the high-performance side of things, so in participation um, and trying to get more people involved in the sport. Um, I knew I wanted to be involved in sport. I just didn't know in what capacity. So I think I've always had a passion for coaching and I've especially had a passion for helping people be the best that they can be. And I think you can do that in multiple 
areas, particularly in sport, you can be a physiologist and do that. You can be a psychologist and do that. So, yeah, I just, I, I wasn't sure whether it was going to be coaching, but I had done a little bit of coaching before I accepted the role with British Cycling. And it's in, in, in honesty, I think deep down, I knew that that's, that was where my passion was. So um, it was just about an opportunity and the opportunity presented in Great Britain. Okay. Okay. Really. Um, I love kind of, yeah, like just, just going for it. And I, I guess the practitioners that listen to this or anyone, anyone listen to this, you know, like just, you just went for a job just to, just to, yeah, you kind of drawn to it. And I, and I suppose what my next question is, what were your expectations of coaching before you actually got into it? I think I had a, a unique um, thought process or expectation about what I what I believe coaching was. And actually, I think possibly what set me apart from, from, from some of the feedback I've had from my interview was that I had a very clear philosophy, and which probably sounds quite strange given that I had actually not coached up to that point. Whereas I, I was very, very strongly, and I still am to this day, very strong about the three sort of pillars of my coaching philosophy. And I live and die by that. And it's very rare, I think, to see or hear that from other coaches. And I actually think the the next step in sport, at least Olympic sport, I think, is probably revisiting the coaching paradigm and how coaching and what coaching actually is. Because in, in my in my belief, I think that a coach is a teacher and a teacher is a coach. And so my philosophy really centers around the things I learned in my degree in in teaching and pedagogy and how people learn and how I can take my 15 years of experience of being an athlete and all the things that I learned and try to help a 17-year-old develop and how I need to scaffold and how I need to progress them on. Whereas I see a little bit in Olympic sport right now more a coach just sort of writing a program. Um, you know, they, they turn up the athletes, did the work, and there's not too much thought, I don't think, on like what learning are we actually trying to get from these athletes and how are we how are we measuring learning and how are we measuring progress in terms of them as people, not just about the results that they might get. Right, right. I think then that kind of where I want to ask now is like, so as an athlete for you, and of course such a successful career, what made a good practitioner coach versus a great one in your experience? Yeah, I think um, one of the things I've been really fortunate about through my career is I I actually got to work with a lot of coaches and I think like with anything and like with myself, there are good good and not so great things that people, you know, sort of deliver. But one of the most profound experiences that I had with a coach was a coach who really considered me as a person first. Like he actually didn't care about my results. He just wanted me to be happy. And I hadn't experienced that before because in high performance sport, and we're told this constantly, right, it's all about winning. Yes. You know, what will it take to win plans, yes. which is actually part of the environment and it is needed. Like these organizations exist to win medals. But the, the direct irony to that is that you can only really win medals if the people are happy. Yeah. <laughs> and we, I think we recognize that there's an, a bit of an issue. And so we've increased well being support and things like that. But actually, I think how you help the people, and I'm not just talking about the athletes here, I'm talking about the staff is by daily doing things to help to help the people. And that also is a part of my coaching philosophy, which is person before athlete or person before staff member. So yeah, I think um, I think that that's really important. Let me get clear on that you just said person before staff member. So like looking at the person rather than the coach or the athlete, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, absolutely. And and I think I think when I did eventually end up leaving British Cycling, yeah. I, I felt because I'd only had such a short time there, it ended up only being, I think, 17 or 18 months. Yeah. I, I felt this feeling that I wasn't leaving that legacy or I hadn't impacted the way that I thought that I could impact. But actually, in all the, the cards that I had got from staff members in particular were things that you know, this was the best 16 months of my career working with you. And it really made me reflect on, well, well why was that? And I think and I hope and I hope that I continue to do this is that I really try to treat the performance support staff as athletes themselves because if you think about it like they're doctorates they're doing yeah. master's degrees they're experts in their 
their domain, just like I'm an expert in the domain of sprint cycling. So I tried to enable them to be the best that they could be. And that a part of that was getting to know them as people. Right, right. Really wonderfully said. And I suppose I want to let's go there now. It's um getting to know the person. Um one of the common themes that I bring up in these conversations is um the idea that in many performance departments, and this was true for me, and I say when I say many, kind of from all the conversations I had in co- with coaches over the last few years, like for to get to know the person, there's an element of self-preservation in many highest performance departments. And what I mean by that is there is either a job insecurity in certain sports or many sports. There's almost competition between staff members because it's this, maybe not a consciously but this idea of uh, performance impact trying to justify role kind of uh, insecurity low self-worth like i said you know that affected me and so i wonder how have you as in your time of coaching or an even an athlete you get to know the person like there's i guess what that sounds like is you're creating a belonging you're creating connection how have you have you been aware of that self-preservation type of dynamic or yeah what your your thoughts on that yeah, I think that that absolutely exists, particularly I see it a lot in the coaching world. It's like, it's really funny, actually. It's like coaches hold all the secrets <laughs> and it's actually the opposite. Like training is just training, you know, like it's, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. And, you know, I would pretty much guarantee that most athletes all around the world in sprint cycling or whatever sport it is, pretty much do the same things like there's innovation right and you can be a little bit ahead of the times a little bit behind but people they just go and ride their bikes they lift weights in the gym and you know it's just it's, it's pretty simple and so I, I I find it I almost find it quite funny actually the the secret squirrel stuff and you know who's got the answers to this and that and you know interestingly I when I left British Cycling I left them with a the full plan I did full handover notes I, I mean, the program was written right up to, to day dot to, to Paris. And I did that, A, because I think that that's just good practice in terms of I really want the athletes and the staff to be successful, irrespective of whether I'm there or not. Um, and also, like, I think just that community of practice and helping people to become better is really important. The thing is, it's actually just it's how the coach coaches and how the coach develops the culture and the environment that will that actually has the biggest impact and again I could keep coming back to this that's I in my opinion the most important part because the training is the training it's 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 not there's no special stuff out there so I've definitely seen and I definitely still see that in coaching that coaches you know feel like they own the athlete or they own the program and the reality is is that I'm just a facilitator of the, the athlete's career I, I actually work for them I, I don't think it's the other way around and so um I, I I really feel that I try to you know empower them to have their career and and, and I'm just there to sort of hope, hope and um guide their dreams forever to wherever they can get to right right I love the way you said that and yeah I think so so many get caught up the other way around and I yeah, it's so lovely to hear you, hear you say that. And I think your perspective on both lenses is really valuable, of course. I guess you mentioned British Cycling a few times, and I'm just going to read uh, a line from, from that article, like I said, which is below. So this is your words. I was rushing over to a course I was doing. The rushing was a regular occurrence for me in my day-to-day job. Rush, rush, rush between meetings and sessions, trying to meet the demands placed on a coach. And I suppose kind of the next question is, you know, linking into the reasons why you did leave. Yeah, kind of, could you dive into that a little bit just from your perspective? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess a bit of context. I, yeah. So I, I retired in, in 2021. I finished, I literally finished my degree um, four days before I got on a plane to head over to Manchester. And oh. my partner and I at the time had decided, okay, we're, we're in this for six years. Like we're going there, the minimum of six years, we're going to start a new life there. We were, we were all in at that point in time. And, uh, you know, I landed in Manchester on my own at that point in time because my partner was finishing up the job. 
with four suitcases to a very grey, rainy Manchester, which is a very common <laughs> experience. Um, and I was just sort of on my own and it was um, really quite tough in the first sort of three to six months were a, definitely a challenge trying to assimilate into a new country. I definitely underestimated how difficult it was to move countries. And actually, in the end, that was the um, catalyst to, to my partner and I ended up having to leave is because we had issues with visas and right. we just didn't do the process properly from the beginning. And I was in the deep end straight away. Um, you know, my first week on the job was at a nation cup. I'd never met the athletes or the staff before face to face. And, you know, it was my first week as a coach and, you know, it was, it was perfectly fine. I was clearly competent in what I was doing, but it was a lot. And this particular course that I was really really grateful to be a part of that was run by UK sport and um, Andy Bradshaw was actually about burnout in high performance coaches. And they're doing a lot of really great research at UK sport at the moment on that. They've got a university on board. The stuff that they're they're looking into is spot on, you know, like I've seen this across the board with coaches and um, yeah, I walked into this coach and I said, this must have been about eight months in, nine months in by this point in time. So, you know, my team was starting to have a bit of success. Things were going really well, but there was definite, this definite feeling that my life, my life wasn't going well. Um, and I rushed over to this course. I was late and I walked into this role play of a coach um, who, you know, was set over eight years. So it went through two Olympic cycles and their partner and the relationship broke down ultimately. And I sort of, I, I sort of sat there thinking, like there were some similarities to what I could see that could potentially play out with my relationship, and it really made me question. And, and probably the most hard hitting thing was then we broke out into small groups, and I got to meet some of the other coaches, of which, because of the coaching world, it was predominantly male. Right. These male coaches were burnt out; <laughs> they had lost marriages, they had lost children, yeah. and I thought to myself, I don't want to be like that (laughs) and so that that was the day actually that was the day that I decided to leave it was another two or three months before it actually became formalized um and it was through no lack of effort with British cycling and myself to try to to meet a middle ground but ultimately what I needed to be able to stay there and do the job at the level that I was doing it it just it just was not possible wow wow yeah I mean I've heard, you know, the divorce, absent parent, I've heard that that's such a common yeah. symptom of of working in sport. And I kind of, you know, again, just a line you, you, you took from your article, oh, I took from your article, fellow high-performance coaches, kind of describing what you just said, fellow high-performance coaches disclose some pretty horrendous circumstances they found themselves in pursuing career success under a common theme of suboptimally managed systems. For I do not necessarily believe that this has to be the experience in a high-performance sport. And I, I guess my point in that putting that sentence in is I think there's a many uh, accept, believe, and surrender to a, a certain myth around sacrifice, sacrifice. And on one hand, there are sacrifices that have to be made working in sport. I do, I do understand, especially around major competitions. But I think I wonder where that the sacrifice over the long term at the expense of such major things like that. I, I wonder where, mm-hmm. I wonder how you see that, what, why that might be, or I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, and, and, and you know, I, I haven't been really in the, on this side of the fence of elite sport for a very long time, but what I'm sort of seeing and hearing from other coaches is, um, and this isn't necessarily like an attack on management, but yeah. Um, I, I, I do think that there needs to be a better way of managing people. And actually it was really, it was really powerful for me to be involved in British Cycling because they, they had subcontracted a particular firm to do some, some work with the performance support team who um, I made, a, I had a good relationship with, um, I guess, a mentor in some way and, and, and a person that worked with my team. And they had a very clear management structure. And I looked at that one day, um, the person was doing some work. I was like, what is that? And it was a, it was a management plan. And I thought, oh, that, I think that that's really <laughs> what, you know, high performance sports really needs because ultimately it is a business in, yeah. in some way, shape or form. And, and the, the commodity is athletes and the outcome mm. is, is winning medals, right? So 
there is that element. There's no there's no hiding away from that. The, these organisations exist to win medals. Yeah. And so I think um, what we need to do is just become better at managing the people who run the organisation so things like burnout don't happen. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess in doing that as well, you, ha- you can then have really clear structures and strategies, and that's something that I think is can be lacking at times um, in terms of, you know, if you have a really clear strategy, like you've got boundaries then around the decisions being made and, um, you know, where you use, utilise staff and when and you can stop that burnout from happening, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think, the, you know, I've spoke to a few coaches who are I, not obviously got your experience, but in the sense of look, trying to look at things in a different way rather than accepting this is how we do it. This is how we always done it in this, in a particular style, kind of completely mm. questioning that. I think, you know, as you progress in your career coaching, however long that is, whatever, I think it sounds like you're going to be integrating this type of, so the performance staff or the, the, the staff within that are going to have more space to be able to set those boundaries. And I say that because uh, a common, I guess, a theme that came up in, in many of the conversations, the idea of the figure front, and so mm-hmm. the figure front, whoever that is, whether it's head coach, usually, of course, but there are head of department, head of performance, whatever, kind of defines the working culture. And if that person has a skew in, for whatever reason, maybe they're overworking to get away from home, whether they're, whatever the reason is, that makes it very difficult for the people who may be kind of underneath that person to to set their boundaries. Some sports mm-hmm. are worse than others. So, I mean, football is one that stands, English football is one that stands out for that. And so, um, yeah, I forgot where I was going to go with that question, but I, I think, I think, I think, I think that yeah. concept of setting boundaries is, yes, um, it's not, it's like it's accepted that you don't set boundaries in sport because you're like it's like oh it's for the athlete and we've got to do it for the athlete and it's right. for the gold medal and then it's no wonder that people get to the end of a cycle and go oh well, you know not feeling like they getting whatever they were sort of searching for in terms of you know the athlete winning or not winning um and so uh, since that course actually um, and, and some of the stuff I did learning British cycling from, from, from my boss there, who uh, a lot of his feedback to me was, you know, you need to protect your time a little bit more because when, when I protect my time, I'm actually very efficient. If I start to, to deviate from my, from protecting my time, I start to experience the symptoms of burnout. So, you know, coming back here to Australia, I've been pretty firm, almost maybe, uh, I don't think hard is the right word, but you know, if a meeting goes for 30 minutes, I, I will only stay for the 30 minutes. Um, right. If if I've got a work phone and it, it goes off at 5 p.m., right. um, you yeah, know, there's exceptions to that where, you know, I've got to send a program out or an athlete sick or whatever it might be. It's It can be a 24-7 thing at times. But for the most part, I'm trying really hard to set some of these, these boundaries. And then on the flip side, modelling what... I would sort of expect. So another thing that I'm, I've started to do a little bit more of is I, I set an agenda before my meetings and that helps keep the, the meeting time down to half an hour or whatever it might be. And there's lots of research to say actually that meetings more than 30 minutes, particularly online meetings, are, they're not really very effective. So, yeah, I, I try to have an agenda. I, I leave meetings now if, they, if they're starting to creep over time. Um, just to sort of show that that's where my boundaries are and that's that's my sort of expectations as well. And I think it's really hard to do that. And, you know, other things I've sort of heard and a really bizarre story I've heard from a, a performance support staff in another sport was how they sort of disclosed to me that they had secured a job as a, as a graduate and they were four years into the job and they were still on a graduate's wage, even though they had asked for you know, the, what they're actually entitled to. But their feedback was, oh, you know, you're in sports, just is what it is, and we don't have the money. And I just thought that's not acceptable. Yeah. That's really not acceptable. And so I think people just have to stand up for themselves a little bit more. Yeah. I think one one of certainly, I, I mean, taking personal responsibility for our experience, you know, that's how I kind of look mm-hmm. at it. And, and did you, in your situation now, like are you are you sort of, 
the head coach in that or how many people sort of are, are more, I guess, senior? If you're looking at it from a linear hierarchy mm-hmm. type of, it's not like that, I know. But like, I guess my point is saying is anyone listening, a practitioner is listening or performance staff, kind of what it sounds like to me, you you have, you're standing in your integrity for what, you're, what you're, your boundaries and you're defending them, you know? And so mm-hmm. there's a confidence and inner confidence to say, to trust yourself, it sounds like, trust your abilities, trust your process for kind of how you're working within that system to then be able to uphold, uphold that. And, and also it says there is respect and trust from the people who are more senior than you. Yeah, I think, I think so. And I, and I think I actually mentioned in my article that I got a bit of a nickname amongst some particular staff members of being ruthless or, or something <laughs> along those lines, because I did start to notice towards the end of my time in British Cycling that I needed to be a far more contained with, what I was sort of giving out um, and I couldn't do everything. And, and you know, I, I realised that developing the culture really, it's really bizarre actually. It's athletes and people thrive in conditions that where they know what the behaviour is, is that is expected of them. But you've got to be really firm with how you hold hold those those boundaries in place. And so, you know, if an athlete did something that wasn't quite right. I had to, I had to come down on them. And that there's this tendency of just letting athletes get away with some, you know, not favorable behaviors, I guess, because they're talented and they're the ones that are going to win medals. Whereas I just didn't really tolerate that. Right. Um, and so um, I think, I think hopefully I'm modeling um, well in a way that is respectful because this is not going to change overnight. And you know, there are times for some innings have to go over a little bit, but in, in terms of, in particular, if, if a meeting falls within an hour before a, a coaching session, which is what I'm technically hired to do, yep. I, I always protect that hour before. Right. And I'm not, I'm really non-negotiable on that. And I think that's a pretty fair, I think that's a pretty fair excuse if you want to call it an, an, an excuse. That's that's where I do my magic in terms of what I'm really right. good at is my coaching sessions. So I think it's just about knowing when to deploy those ruthless boundaries, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like you said, modelling is the, is the most impactful way. I think people will, you know, that's going to spread to the people you're working with. And I think so many that I've heard, I've spoken with, you know, there's, a, there's that fear coming back to that self-preservation. There's a fear of, oh, I can't do that. I can't, I've got to do this. And and it's just encouraging to hear you say that, how you, how you do that. Um, especially again coming from your athlete your athlete's lens to you know your coach's lens I, again a, a perspective i've heard is letting the athlete down or along mm-hmm. those types of things and kind of a comment from your from your article you know athletes are the, uh, or enable athletes to be the ceos of their careers mm-hmm. yeah i think that that's really important and like i said earlier like we we as performance support staff exist to facilitate the dreams of these athletes i think where we've come unstuck a little bit in high performance sport is failing to recognize that the athletes can only thrive if we as performance support team are thriving as well. I hear a lot about this athlete centered environment, how the athlete has to have all of this say, I actually think it's really quite the opposite. I think we have a responsibility to solve the performance problems of the athletes as performance support staff and and get the athlete buy-in by showing them how and why we're doing things. And in doing that, I think you're enabling the performance support staff, um, athletes and staff are gaining confidence, gaining belief in what what you're trying to achieve. And even if it's the wrong thing, I think being brave enough to go, hey, we tried this thing and it didn't work. But actually just being honest about that is important and you know there were things in British cycling despite the fact that we had I had a lot of success with that group like there were things that didn't go quite right and I'm the first person to put my hand up and go yeah I messed that up and I would do these things differently next time um in sport you know you're not going to get it right every single time and you also can't control what anybody else is going to bring either so it's um you can only control what what you've got control over and that's just that's really your environment Yes. And like, how else can you see new ways if you don't make mistakes? You don't see what's, you know. Yeah, there's a real, there's a real culture of not wanting to fail. And actually one of the, I think what I feel one of the things I'm really, really passionate about is that I put together a bit of a project for the sprint event 
in which I deployed some of the stuff I'd learned from previous coaches, some of the stuff I had learned in my degree where I actually, in track sprint cycling, there's this history of just chasing physiology because right. if you look at the statistics, for example, in a sprint event, if you qualify in the top three, you, you, you've got a 70% chance of winning. So, you know, obviously those odds favour going out and chasing physiology, but I, I see the sport starting to regress in skill and so I saw okay. this real power in trying to chase the technical side of it. And, you know, that was the one, that was a whole year project and it eventually culminated in Emma Finucan winning the, the, the World Sprint Championship. And I'm not necessarily saying that it was just because of that, but I think her confidence to go out and execute the technical components alongside the physical work we've done was so powerful and again, if I think about coaching paradigm and, and, and the way that I think coaching needs to go, the, the learning that that athlete and that group um, got from that experience, I hope was career transforma- transformative for them and showed them that failing was okay because it, there was a big part of that where I asked them to go out and lose, not lose races but do things that they would never typically do. Right. And that was where the goal was because that's wow. where they learnt new things about themselves. And I, we don't do that enough in high-performance sport. Wow, what a powerful example. Just the freedom to practice, the freedom to, yeah, there's just the freedom to investigate. Yeah, um, and, and no consequences, right? This failing is okay. Um, and, in fact, I would say you learn more in failure than you do in winning. Right, 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 right. And I suppose kind of that then that, comes to the question of what is how do, what do you see as success mm-hmm. um i guess you know it's so easy to measure and, and and of course it's important like you said you know major organizations and institutes are, are funded and to get medals mm-hmm. so that's obviously one measure but what's your personal measure of success um i think i mean i'm not going to shy away from the fact that you know seeing an athlete and a team win a silver medal in a world championship at the world's just gone was super powerful and it's addictive, right? Like, so I can see why coaches and performance support staff want to be a part of it and want to be there. But actually success for me was the very last meeting I had at British Cycling was to exit an athlete off the program. And that was really tough, but I was really proud of the way in which that athlete and the performance sports staff went around helping that athlete to transition. And that athlete now has a job and is happy and is highly capable, just like I always knew she was. Um, It was some other success was an athlete who, you know, had experienced some really terrible grief starting to become able to cope with that grief it was the mother who was able to take their child away on a team with that it was the performance support staff member who you know didn't feel afraid about having a day off here and there because you know it's all about got to be there got to be there all the time um so it was those things that told me that the things that I was trying to implement were being successful and I think like a little bit like what I said if the people happy I think the athletes inadvertently sort of benefit from that and then I guess the success of whether you you know you win the benchmark event or not is kind of irrelevant to to an extent and all of the things that I had put into place really showed before that 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 last race of the season that there was a lot of success at the team had had anyway so even if we weren't successful there was momentum building and we really they really knew what direction they needed to go in so the confidence was really high right right amazing so then i guess the twin to that question what is success like what and this is this is always going to be a moving target i suppose but what, how do you, and you've mentioned about your boundaries, how do you, in your specific example, you know, what is sacrifice to you? And of course, like I said, yeah. that's that's a moving target, but how do you assess that in yourself and, and your your environment to keep re-evaluating? I think that's a really interesting question. And I'm not, I'm not going to lie here by saying that I think I've really struggled the last three months since I've left British Cycling. I've really grieved that experience. And there's a huge part of that 
identity that I had over the last 18 months tied up in that team. And I felt really low, actually. It seemed really tough. And so I think if I think about sacrifice, I mean, there was a big part of myself that I sacrificed to, to put what I did into that team. And I guess what I, by putting these new boundaries in and being quite firm on them, I guess I'm trying to make sure that I don't sacrifice to an extent that could be catastrophic in the future, whether that's my health, whether that's a relationship, whether that's the prospect of having a family, which, um, you know, to, to be quite honest with you, I'm really unsure about how a podium coach could, female coach could be a, a mother right now um, just because the policies don't exist and I don't get a great feeling of support from organisations about it. So it's um, it's really interesting. And so they're the questions that I'm asking myself, like what am I prepared to sacrifice for sport and what I've come to realise as I've gotten older but also as I've spent more time, as I spend more time in this coaching space is I, I'm actually not prepared to sacrifice Right. the other things that I want in life. Um, and I, I try really hard to make sure that I feel like I'm slipping down that slippery slope of my identity being tied up in what I'm doing, that I'm balancing that out and I'm getting myself checked and challenged by my partner, by my family. And even I've been really grateful that British Cycling has allowed me to keep working with the external psychologist that I was working with. So it's those things that have helped to keep me going through these last couple of months in particular. Right. I think the powerful thing you mentioned around grief, you know, and, and that's certainly touched my life in in many more in an amount I wish it hadn't. But and in a different context of course, but kind of the idea of grief, you know, of losing grief is not just a loss of someone, it's a loss of a role. It's in fact I experienced it and my wife did as well when we became parents. We never turn that back, but like the idea of the grief of the person that was to now who is, and I think kind of honoring that grief and you know as best as you, whatever you want to share. But like how how do you navigate grief? Probably haven't done a, the best job of, of it since I've been back in Australia, and I think I think part of that's been the fact that I've I've moved countries in life, and I've you know I've had some major sort yeah. of life transitions over the last two years like I've ended a 15-year career I finished a degree I moved countries I moved back countries I took a team from sort of you know thinking that they were nothing to something and it's just like there's been so much change that I probably in all honesty I just actually haven't stopped and one of the things that I, I I did really feel strongly about was that I needed some space in between the two roles which I I wasn't probably afforded the time that I actually did need. So, you know, I, I, I'm going to check in with my boss in the next week or two and, and really look at my annual leave and making sure that I make the most of that, that time and that space. Because that's another thing that I see with coaches is they don't use their annual leave because oh. they, they, they feel like they have to be there and, and, you know, in the environment. When the reality is, is you know, in, in my vision of a good coach is that when I get to the Olympics, all I'm doing there is pushing them off the line. If I actually have to coach them there, I've failed. And that so then that means that at some point down the pathway, I have to make these athletes and this support staff autonomous and confident in what they're doing. So they don't need me. And I actually don't want them to need me. I want them to, you know, trust me and to be really happy to work with me. But I want them to walk away. And I really hope that the British cycling girls feel this that they're confident in the things that they've learned and that they are the CEOs of their career and that they can go on into Paris next year and they can reach their potential, whatever that's going to be, which I think it can be a gold medal, no pressure girls. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think they've got the capabilities of it. Yeah. Again, you said so many amazing things. I, I kind of, um, what you're describing, you know, autonomy, something that many don't have the micromanaged um, connection, belonging. Again, these things are standing up from the conversation I'm having. Of, and I suppose what you're talking about, uh, an idea, you know, identity kind of not getting so stuck, uh, being capable in understanding your boundaries and then setting your boundaries. I guess you could put it into, I could put it into a, a box of self-growth or personal growth. 
what is your definition of of that? And I suppose I'll give context. I've mentioned it a few times in these interviews and an article. I'll put the article below, like I have done before. There's an article recently around um, clarifying the attributes. I can't remember the exact title, but clarifying the attributes of roles, attributes of the high-performance director in high-performance sport. And in one, one of the elements to that is creating an environment for self-growth. And so I think, like we said, I mentioned at the beginning, and so many are focused, the, the perception of personal growth is technical through the technical lens only, which you, leaves mm-hmm. these massive blind spots. So it did do for me and I've, many that I've spoken to. And I suppose, yeah, coming back to like, what is, what is self-growth or personal growth to you? How, how, do you, how do you define that for you? I think um, one of the things towards the end of my time in Britain was that I um, I realized to get, and I, I guess it's a little bit contradictory because I'm talking about the identity that is wrapped up in cycling. But one of the things that I realized how I could sort of become better at what I was doing was to step outside my domain. And so right. some of that self-growth involved me deliberately taking some days of personal development and going and talking to some different people and following through on some of the courses because again another thing I've noticed with performance support staff or coaches is that you know that course can wait or I'm not going to go and visit that other coach because I'm too busy whereas I, I deliberately made space for that and I it was one of the things that I really asked for when I came back here was that I wanted some opportunities for personal development and I guess for me that also helps me to make sure I'm not getting so intertwined with the environment that I am in and I am seeing and I can look from an outside lens. I wanted to briefly interrupt this great conversation with Carly and ask you, how do you see life through different lens? In particular, I want to draw your attention to the Practitioner Needs Analysis Coaching Program. The conversations in my research have shown clearly that 160 highly successful practitioners supporting some of the world's greatest athletes have on one level achieved a great deal within high performance sports and academia. Yet on a much more personal level, many are quietly suffering to maintain the perception of being successful and happy. This is the inconvenient truth sitting just under the surface within our high performance environments. The cost of this truth ranges from divorce, absent parent, physical and mental illness, all of which contribute to limiting the performance impact we all strive so hard to achieve. The human element has been forgotten, with many top practitioners now finding ways to leave our beloved industry. My research process has spawned the services I now provide to support performance practitioners. Athletes have a vast array of options within their support network to help them thrive, optimise and activate their full expression. But very little is currently aimed at offering this unique support for performance practitioners. This is where the Practitioner Needs Analysis Coaching Programme fills that gap. The Practitioner Needs Analysis allows you to identify what qualities are most important for you to show up in your role, career and life in your fullest expression. It provides an inner analysis that highlights the components of your life, giving you clarity on what is blocking you, how it's blocking you and what you need to do to release those blocks. This guides you to tell your goals and actions away from potential burnout, divorce or illness and instead towards one where you thrive as a practitioner and in your personal life. To find out more about the group and one-to-one options Men Behind Sport offers, visit www.menbehindsport.com or email me at richard at menbehindsport.com. Now, back to this great conversation with Kylie. And so, you know, I guess I try to do the same things in my own personal life as well by setting those boundaries, gives me space to do things like one of the things that... Um, you know, I've realized is I have to exercise every day. And if I yeah. don't do that, I'm, I'm really cranky. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it's just a part of my routine. Um, and that then gives me social connection with people that I don't normally interact with. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've moved countries, I've moved states, I've come to a state that I don't know anybody. So I've started to get a great community of new friends in my CrossFit that I go to. Um, my partner's in the defense force now so he's got a new community of people and so I think it's just about making sure that you're not so obsessed in your own little world because our own little world is you know it's good it's bad it's ugly but if you step outside if you go and talk to any some of my normal friends I call them who aren't involved in sport and I tell them you know about how we're going for this race they're kind of like oh yeah 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes you realize it's not that big yeah. in the whole scheme of life. And I actually had a sign above my computer in Manchester when I was working that said, I'm trying to make people, you know, go fast and turn left or something like that. And it's right. really not that important. And so I try to remember that when I'm having hard days or something in the system's frustrating me or, you know, I'm absolutely flat chat because I'm back-to-back meetings and I'm not coaching, which is what I want to do. Um, yeah. And so I think in terms of self-growth, it's just trying to keep coming back to catching yourself, having the self-awareness of catching yourself when you're starting to become cynical, which is a symptom of burnout, or you're yeah. overworking, which is you know a symptom of burnout. Yeah, I think that was a really long-winded way of saying that I think it's important to be self-aware and know what your your risks are. Yeah, yeah, and having and like kind of again having that perspective outside of sport. I, I love that example you said of, you know, <laughs> I help people go fast around a track, going turning left around yeah. a track, and um, again that perspective is lost so so much. It's it's everything. It was everything to me years ago, and and <laughs> and. Uh, and I, I want to come back to what you said about motherhood, and this is the lens that I can't, uh, or yeah, I don't understand. And you know, obviously, men behind sport, and but with the full awareness that there are some, you know, you're giving a, a wonderful examples, kind of your your female perspective. And I suppose I want to come like this is one of the reasons to these conversations, like well, trying to highlight some areas that need to change in sport. And I suppose how, what are some of the blocks? I think you said about the process, or, or like it just makes it very hard for mothers for coaches female coaches to be mothers because if you look at your example the 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 wealth of actual experience as an athlete and now you're bringing into coaching and your kind of your philosophy which kind of resonates so much with me will be lost at some point if that's unable you know if you can't fulfill your your life outside of it as well and i suppose where do you see some of those blocks and and if anything this is a massive question like what do you feel could help with that yeah, uh, this is a this is almost a can of worms. I think. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think the reason why we don't have many females in the coaching space is is because I think it is really hard in the current climate to be a mother and coach. Um, an example would be I sort of mentioned something to someone a little while ago about um, you know you know when I'm a mother and you know I've got my child and I'm thinking about going to competitions. How do you think that's going to work? And they just sort of said, yeah. "Oh, you won't travel." I thought, well. I part of the reason why I do what I do is because I want to travel and I want to, you know, implement some of the stuff I've been working on with my athletes at these events. And so that that really that really bothered me. And so I realized that, that it's we need to start to challenge some of these biases around, you know, what it looks like and how do we support both female athletes and females and you know, even even males. So I, I was talking to one of my mentors about this. A couple of days ago, actually, and she she actually said to me, um, she was working with a, a male coach who has five children, and it was just never ever discussed with him that, or he never considered that he would go on paternity leave. That was just the wife's the wife's job. And I thought, well, you know, that's that I mean that's also the start of why some of these wow. male coaches start to lose touch with their families, probably yeah. because there's no expectation for them to you know, they're, they're just not going to do that. They're not going to go on paternity leave. And so it's, it's, I think it's really interesting and it's something that I think we need to start to have good dialogue and discussion about. And um, Cricket Australia actually has a really great um, athlete policy around maternity leave. So athletes actually get 12 months maternity leave. It's one of the best in the country, if not the best in the country. Um, and so I think organizations need to start to talk about maternity policies and then I think what I think will happen is that you'll start to get more females in the space because it's more attractive than right yeah, yeah. it's I mean also I mean don't even have a maternity policy at the moment but they've been really um grateful and helpful with me trying to help them decide and, and understand what that could look like which I, I I feel really grateful about that um but certainly in terms of like <laughs> For me as a coach, I still don't see how it how it could possibly work, and I think that's just because of where coaching is right now, and 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 that the coaching paradigm needs to shift. And in an ideal world, if I was really to do it the way that I think it needs to happen, is that I 
I need an assistant coach or a couple of coaches underneath me that I'm upskilling and mentoring so that I can send them away and they, we can job share and it doesn't have to be a female, it could be a male. And then we're developing the next crop of coaches. And so, you know, when I do decide to move on at some point, there's a crop of coaches that are really confident and capable coming through. Um, It's just not too much of that going on at the moment. I, I love that. Um, I mean, for our safe as a parent, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't imagine going away. For, even now, my daughter's an E6, going away for a, any significant period of time. I, I wouldn't want to. You live so much, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of Gabor Mate, but he'll, he'll, you know, I've heard people describe the idea of bonding when they can interact with their child. But in fact, it's it's the first three years or first seven years really, mm-hmm. but the first three years are crucial for that bonding time. And I suppose kind of what you're talking about, and I really love this. Um, the first kind of came about it with um, Owen Eastwood. You're talking about leadership. And so there's the stereotypical leadership, which is the hero model. I'm here, follow me. My way is the right way. Or the guardian leadership, which comes from kind of more of a marriage tradition. And so what you're talking about, what that really is, is understanding that if I was a coach, I'm inheriting that position. There are people before, there are people after. And so how do you, one, align the values, align my, my values with their values? But what you're talking about is, is that is passing on the baton, passing the baton of your knowledge, your experience, and adjusting the roles to be, so yeah, like that mentorship role, which kind of perpetuates this this development and this passing on of your 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 wisdom to to someone else. And then they, they adapt that wisdom and, and it's just this, it seems such a organic, powerful way of 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 kind of continuing this legacy of yeah to me anyway that's what stands out yeah i think i i think the really key part there is in in doing that i think it keeps the the leader also growing as well and i think about actually some of my times as an athlete i um I, I left the Australian cycling program for a period of time and I went back to my state and, you know, I was really in a developing space there, not the elite space. I learned so much off those developing athletes and they would never know, but, you know, they didn't have these preconceived ideas of what being elite was. They're just there riding and they didn't know how they were doing things. And, you know, that's almost the same if you have that sort of model of, you know, sharing knowledge and, and guiding and mentoring. And that's across all performance support areas. You know, I really feel like you could do that in physiology, you could do that in nutrition. Um, it, I think that becomes a, a much better community of practice um, and helps people to develop and grow and, and checks and challenges you as well because yeah. I'm very clear on my philosophy, but certainly one aspect of my philosophy, which is coach athletes to coach themselves, shifted over my time in British cycling because I realised at the point, about six months before I knew I was going to leave, I realised that the athletes were a bit dependent on me and they, yeah. I heard things like, we need you. And that that concerned me because I, you know, it felt nice. Like, And I can yeah. understand why people get, you know, drawn to that. But like I said before, I don't want them to need me. I want them to believe in themselves and to have the self-efficacy and the belief yeah. that they can do it without me. And that's the same with, with coaching. Like the next coach that comes along, you know, underneath me, when I do step away at some point, whether that's to go have a child or to step into a different position, I want that coach to really feel confident that they could do it even if they feel nervous which there's still days where I'm like oh my gosh I feel a little bit (laughs) out of my depth here but certainly I I I try to go and ask questions and seek answers and learn from others to try to fill those gaps or to make sure that I'm not waffling crap or (laughs) that I do you know know what I'm you know I'm on the right track essentially yeah yeah I mean what stands out like I said at the beginning we've just met like it sounds out you're like the transparency the honesty that you you shine kind of and the 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 seeking to get to know people that's what really stands out from what we've spoken about and and i think that's why you are and will continue to be successful you know it's that sense of belonging that safety i think someone i've heard it described psychological safety within the team or department 
kind of it's um yeah that's kind of what, what stands out i suppose leading on to that like away from the technical elements the x's and o's as as snc's call yeah. it what what do you feel practitioners or head coaches kind of where would you direct them to to look at themselves um to enhance their impact to enhance their yeah their cause i think um i think practitioners could look at some kind of you know learning in pedagogy um, whether okay. that's a coach whether that's a um, physiologist because ultimately you know if, if we are to have a shift in sport what you really want is and I've spoken to someone about this what you want is you want your technical coach you want your physiology coach you want your nutrition coach because they're, they're coaches right they're, they're teachers right. they're trying to teach something yeah. so you want them to have an ability to teach and to, to coach and an understanding of learning and how do you engage this person who doesn't want to eat the right food um, how do you you know, get them to where they need to be. Um, so I think that would be really helpful. And then I guess in terms of like head coaches, I, I would say some some upskilling or development in in management. I reckon would be, yeah. you know, super powerful. And because then that's where they could, I think, where they could be really. Because I mean, these people have got jobs because they they clearly have a passion for it. They clearly, um, you know, want to help and they want to change and they want to influence change and move the system on and make it better. Um, it's just then if you've got that, I guess that management experience or that knowledge, then you can take your vision and 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 your knowledge and you can put it in a framework to help people thrive. And and that I think would be super powerful for for sporting organisations and for head coaches and for you know senior senior leadership is to decide what is the framework, how do we want to manage, what is our strategy, and how are we going to help these people get to where our vision is. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Coming to kind of, I guess, coming to the end, like, is there, what would you say, like, you know, like I've spoken to predominantly men and men behind sport, and of course it is a predominantly male culture or male environment. What, from your female lens, what would you say the male lens misses, if anything at all? Um, mm -hmm. And again, that's a massive question, but. yeah. <laughs> what do the what does the male lens miss? Um, yeah. It's probably I would say if I think, and I'm being very stereotypical here. Know, um, women have I think this this more um, nature of that that nurture side of of things, and so I think environment it comes a little bit easier to females potentially, and that important that importance of nurturing the people in the environment. It's not that men don't do that I just don't know if they do it in a way that's having the biggest impact possible and that's not just for the the staff or the athletes that's for themselves as well right. I'm not sure the, the culture of the, this overworking culture is largely a, a male thing yes yeah. uh, you know we're invested we're going to win we're going to war <laughs> I hear that a lot in sport we're going to war we're not going to war we're <laughs> trying to help people go faster around the track so it's just it's just bringing things back down to reality and, and and thinking about what is the culture how am i going to influence this environment um and you know you don't have to be so hard it's right. probably another thing i see right um which is i think it's really interesting that i got called ruthless towards the end because um i i hope that the people who were in my environment that i was working with constantly whilst I was very firm on my boundaries knew that I cared about them and the reason why I enforced those boundaries was because I cared about them um yeah so that that nurturing side of things I think is something that that males for themselves and for their environment could could think about a little bit more I I love that and I, I guess I've heard that in a slightly different way in in recent years um the idea of intellect versus intelligence. So intellect is of the level of the mind and so knowledge, application and knowledge, um, which is, again, it's, it's part of the picture, but intelligence is of the heart. So the heart communicates with the brain and that 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 intuitive, that felt sense. And I guess, you know, you're talking about caring, like that, that the deep wisdom that I've come to realize does exist within the heart. And, um, and I would have dismissed all this years ago. 
but just that yeah like getting that balance between intellect mind and intelligence which is of more of a being a state of being and a, a sense and um i certainly as i keep practicing that like it just it has been profound in my life uh which i wouldn't have listened like i said he wouldn't listen to you and i think like you said men often come at it from that level of mind intellect proving impact objective measures versus walking yes data Yes, right. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Because, like, how could, in in all honesty, I can't actually show you in any data that I influence the culture of my the group in Britain, because there's nothing that can really, other than them smiling, you know, being happy, feeling safe. That's that's internal to them. But I can't, I can't honestly sit here and say that the things that I did got that result right even though I fundamentally believe that the work that I did on the environment probably had the single most significant impact so and that's high performance sport right we're chasing the outcome physiology data numbers yeah they're the most important things so I think just remembering that again like a success might be seeing the athlete exit out of the program right in a way that's you know that that person's going to be okay. And yeah. that is super important to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, um, yeah, that's so powerful. And I, I kind of, again, that perspective, that lens, like improve the person that's in front of you rather than, you know, just see the person in front of you and, and how can they be better? Again, I've, some, many people have said, I've spoken to, you know, if you make the person better, their performance in whatever domain will increase. And, Absolutely. Um, we can't really kind of come at the end, like fully aware of your time. And I suppose, I don't know, is, is there anything else that you'd love to kind of touch on before we finish um, that we haven't mentioned or something you want to go deeper in or anything, anything at all? Um, no, I think, I think just something that I feel really strongly about is that we as coaches and as, and, and as performance support team members just need to start to think about how we do um, protect ourselves and help shift systems along to a more sustainable pathway. I mean, there's a lot of high turnover now as well in sport. And I think that that's probably pointing towards burnout and, you know, a lack of trust in environments and things yeah. like that. So, but that, that comes down to all of us and having the courage to, um, live some of our values and not standing right. for some of the expected norms in sport. And I guess, I, I guess to end one of the things that came from that course again, was that I heard a, um, I can't remember what sport it was, but that the course that I was doing at UK sport, I had a mixture of coaches and high performance support staff and as a senior leadership team members. And the discussion was around how the best coaches in, in the UK were the coaches that had to be stretched off at the end of an Olympics. And I would just encourage people to think about that. Like we're talking about a human being having to, um, you know, whether that's mentally or physically, have to <laughs> spend many, many weeks or months, maybe years recovering from that for right. Olympic success. And I just think you can do both. I think you can have the success whilst protecting yourself but that starts with us as practitioners having the courage to make sure that we are questioning some of the the old ways of working and the protecting our boundaries and making sure that we're not um just doing it as a sport and it's expected of us um and like I said I think if the people are happy in the organization the athletes would just benefit from that so I guess that's a message to the to, to the senior leadership team members and the the, high, the head coaches and, and 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 you know those people who might listen to this podcast. It's that's focusing on our staff as much as we're focusing on the athletes. Yes, yeah, you have modelled that courage in the sense of stepping away from British cycling to create a more for all the reasons, all the personal reasons that you did. You know, you you. It, it, you, you made the decision for you you took that very hard decision to to change and to move and i think that yeah that looking after staff i, I truly believe a, a coach facing or in a way like a performance lifestyle type of situation i'm not i'm not sure but i think that that is coming in the future when in a, in a different form slightly different form but i think that is 
a necessity moving forward. And I think that'll be that'll be the organizations and, and teams that that thrive in the coming years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think my prediction would be that the systems that take a little bit more emphasis in this space and you know really start to rethink about how coaching actually is deployed will be the systems that thrive for some cycles to come i really feel strongly that this is if you think about sport and how it evolves you know technology comes and you know countries thrive in technology or it might be training innovation i think the next shift in sport is to coming coaching how coaching is delivered and the consideration of the performance environment for all of the people who are involved because you know at the end of the day we tell athletes they need to sleep but then we go to an event right. and there the coaches are up till 2 a.m doing meetings and you're just like my oh gosh how can i be the best that i can be for that athlete the next day telling them to go and get sleep if i'm not even sleeping yeah. with myself exactly that and again you're coming down to taking personal responsibility for your experience and for modeling the change that you want to see and yeah i completely agree with you and so easy to get caught in a, a victim mindset of the sit of the environment, but I think we create our environment and yeah and uh yeah I'm so I'm excited to to obviously stay in touch and to see where you 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 go over the coming years and what you what you do with the obviously with your coaching but like the environments you create and the changes that you will be part of of making in this space and um, thanks Richard I really appreciate that and and thank you for doing what you're doing because I think uh, I mean like I said that this is the start of a, of a change of a revolution and I think you're really driving it and I really appreciate it and anything I can do in the future to, to help let me know thank you so much thank you like just more conversation like this and then more people having the courage to, to just like you did in your article you're like just so many people experiencing it but very few are coming forward and talking about it and uh yeah you took that step and, and uh yeah thank you and thank you for your time and all the, you know, your experience and, and uh, that you've shared here. And uh, is there anywhere kind of, you know, are you on social media? Don't worry if you're not. I just wonder if anyone can point you in your direction. I'm, I, I mean, I have Instagram. I wouldn't say I'm a very avid user of it. Um, I'm, I'm obviously on LinkedIn, but um, okay. certainly I've got Instagram. Um, but LinkedIn is the best place these days to to find me. Okay. Okay. Well, that, the link to your article is below and then you'll obviously be able to find people able to find your, your profile from there. So um, thank you so much. uh, And uh, yeah, I'll speak to you soon. Great. Thank you. I just want to remind you that if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes or Spotify platforms. By doing this, you'll actively help in spreading this content to practitioners that need it.